Please take up your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. We are in Revelation chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 6, and we are going to look at the church of Sardis today. Um, I hope you and I hope you know that I am growing through this as well, that I am being convicted as we study this. I know I make jokes about not wanting to preach beyond the end of chapter five where it gets hard, but as I study even those portions that are difficult in Revelation, God is growing me, and so I hope that as we continue to do this, he will grow you as well. Um, we are looking at the church of Sardis. Uh, Sardis is a city Actually, it's two cities that lie about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. Remember, as we begin in Exodus and work our way through, this letter would have made a, an, an oval circuit uh, throughout these seven churches that John sent these letters to. Uh, and, and Sardis lies on the southward journey of that oval. Um, as I mentioned, it was actually founded as two different cities. The first city that was founded was on a plateau above the plain, and it was the citadel. It was the fortress that uh, the military would use to protect the area. Um, it, was it was considered, this citadel was considered to be impregnable and impossible to breach. In fact, in some areas of Greece, if you were going to attempt something impossible, you would tell somebody that you were going to do a Sardis or something along those lines. Um, the other part of the city that was founded, it was founded on the plains below the uh, uh, the plateau, and it was the area of commerce. It's where the temples resided. It's where trade was done. Now, one thing that applies to our letter today is as the citadel was considered to be impregnable, um, it wasn't. It was actually captured at least five times during its um, history. Two of the times it was captured at night as the armies found a way to get into the city at night. Um, Cyrus, uh, king of the Medes and Persians, was one of the first ones to defeat Sardis. His army was besieged um, on the plains trying to figure out how to get in. We're actually ready to give up when um, a, a couple of the, the Medo-Persian soldiers who had gotten close to the citadel noticed that there was a soldier up on the wall and he had dropped his helmet over the wall. And, you know, much like the military today, if you mess up your uniform, you're in trouble. Um, so he decided that he was, the soldier decided he was going to sneak down and, and he sneaked down to the bottom of the plateau on the secret path that the Medes and the Persians didn't know about until this soldier dropped his helmet. And that's how they snuck in late at night. Um, and so that, that part of these two armies sneaking in late at night does play into our account here later on. So let us look to our account uh, that Jesus gives to the church in Sardis, beginning in Revelation 3.1. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what time at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. 
I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. God of all righteousness, whose name we carry, we come before you today seeking wisdom, seeking conviction, and seeking reminders of your glorious grace. Mold us and form us for your glory through this word today. May this word make us wise for the work that you have ordained for each of us throughout the week. May the Holy Spirit convict us of the complacency which we have fallen into. May the work of the Savior fill us with confidence to live holy lives before you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So have you ever been reading a, a, a news story, whether it's in the newspaper or on, in an online account of the news story, and just been absolutely horrified by the details of the crime that was listed? And it just makes you think, what is wrong with the world? You're reading the details and, and you're reading the story and, and, and you're, you're, you're just more and more horrified as you go through, whether it's sexual crimes or drugs or Whatever the details may be, you, you realize that this is somebody who is absolutely horrific. And then, and then it hits you. I, I know that person. And I think they've got the wrong guy. Because the person that you know is a leader in the community. Serves on various volunteer boards and civic organizations. He may even teach a Bible study at the local church. There is no way that this is the same person that was arrested for these heinous crimes. This person has a reputation for being a fine, upstanding citizen, a pillar in the community, someone who was looked up to and, and someone you might be tempted to say to your kids or your grandkids, you know what, you need to be like him someday. This is the issue with the church in Sardis. They had a reputation among other churches for being alive. But they were actually whitewashed tombs. Vibrant and pretty on the outside, but dead on the inside. And Jesus confronts them in this. The issue in Sardis here is an issue, to, issue between reputation and and reality. Who did people think they were versus who they actually were? Jesus jumps in from the start with the declaration that they have a reputation, literally a name, for being alive when they are actually dead. The church in Sardis has a reputation for life and vigor and work for God, but Jesus declares that they are actually dead and not working for him. We see this first in what isn't present in the letter. Sometimes scripture truth is, is taught to us by what is not there as much as it is taught to us by what is there. And what is not included in the letter to the church in Sardis is a call to remain faithful in the face of either persecution or false teaching. In each of the preceding letters, there was either a theological problem that needed to be confronted or a temptation to compromise because of persecution or some combination of both. But neither of these is present in the letter to the church in Sardis. And Warren Wearsby says that we can make this conclusion, 
The unsaved in Sardis saw the church as a respectable group of people who were neither dangerous nor desirable. They were decent people with a dying witness and a decaying ministry. The gospel in Sardis was a weak gospel that was neither a stumbling block nor an offense to anyone in the area or anyone that may have walked through their doors. In 2005, Christian Smith, who was a Christian sociologist, coined the term moralistic therapeutic deism to describe the teaching in the church, including many conservative, supposedly Bible-believing churches. Smith argued that preaching and teaching in the church is focused on making moral people, the moralistic part, who don't have too many problems, the therapeutic part, and believed in some form or, or at least claimed to believe in the biblical God, the deistic part. We made a bunch of moral people who were mentally stable and at least affirmed that a God existed. And he found that this moralistic therapeutic deism, if you stripped all references to God and the Bible out of it, this message of moralistic therapeutic deism would have been just as at home in a motivational speech as it was from the pulpit of a church. Is it any wonder the church is declared to be dead, even though its worship and ministry seems to be vibrant? If I can get the exact same teaching and motivation through an online video, why get dressed and go to church? So the, the, the nature of the church is seen the dead nature of the church is seen as what isn't there, no confrontation of theological problems or persecution, but it's also seen what is there. Its deeds are not complete, Jesus said. That word complete there is a word that, that means fullness or, or fulfillment or, or measuring up to a standard. God's standard of what works are valuable and valid to him was not being met by the Christians in Sardis. At best, their works were half-hearted. In Daniel chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar has died. His grandson Belteshazzar is ruling and, and Belteshazzar is throwing a feast, throwing a party. Evidence is that he knows an army is on its way. The army of the Medes and Persians is on its way to to, to attack him and, and lay him under siege, but he decides to throw a party. And in the middle of this party, as, as all the people are there, this, this disembodied hand comes down and, and writes words in the walls. And everybody was afraid because, well, a disembodied hand came down and wrote words in the wall. So Daniel is summoned. And he's asked, interpret this. And he looks at the words and he says, well, one of the words points to the fact that God has numbered the days of Belteshazzar's kingdom. Another of the words points to the fact that God has ordained that this night will be the end of those days. And the other word told from Daniel 5, 27, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. The Christians in Sardis had come to God's scales, God's balances, their works, their deeds had been placed on the scales and they were found wanting. They were found lacking. And just like the Medes and Persians showed up on the middle of the night to bring God's judgment on Belteshazzar. And as we mentioned earlier, 
that very same army most likely showed up in the middle of the night to bring judgment on Sardis, Jesus would come like a thief in the night to bring judgment on the church in Sardis. They had the trappings, they had the outward looks of life and vibrance, but they were dead because their works were found lacking before God. And in light of this declaration of death within the church of Sardis, Jesus comes with the solution as well. He says to wake up and strengthen what has been given to you. Part of the problem in Sardis was they thought they were so impregnable that it was so impossible to defeat the citadel that oftentimes they wouldn't put a full regiment of guards out at night to make sure there wasn't anybody attacking them. They slept on guard duty because, well, nobody can get here. And the temptation for the church is to say, well, everything's going well, so why do we have to do anything about it? And Jesus comes to them and says, wake up. Wake up to the reality that things are slipping away from you. Wake up to the reality that your signs of life are false. They are just the twitchings of nerves in a dead body. And there are three ways that you can strengthen what you have been given. The first is to remember. Remember what they had received and what they had heard. What had they received and heard? What's the good news of salvation that makes up the church? It's the good news that Jesus is calling to him a people to be his own. And Jesus is doing the work to sanctify, to justify, to make them righteous before God. Remember what it is that initially set you apart. Remember what it is that initially made you the church. It still defines you as the church. Without the gospel, without Jesus, with secular sounding language, with a little bit of religion sprinkled in here or there, you are not the church. If you don't have the gospel, if you don't remember what it is that you were first given through the ministry of preachers and teachers and the Holy Spirit, then you're dead. But the key to life is to remember. And remembering always brings with it action. So the next command is to obey. You know, the gospel comes with obligations on it. Jesus doesn't just save you from hell and then say, go be merry and have a good life. I'll see you at the end. The gospel comes with obligations. We are called to be holy as God is holy. We are called to work out our salvation that God through the Holy Spirit is working in you. You are called to grow daily more and more like Christ. So as you remember what you have been given, obey the words of God. And as we remember and as we seek to obey, you will be confronted with your sin. So repent, remember, obey, and repent. Repentance is the act of abandoning sin and turning toward God. And the sin that the Sardian Christians needed to abandon was the sin of complacency. The sin of, I've arrived, we've arrived. And we can coast from here on out. You cannot coast in the Christian life. You cannot coast in the gospel. People who study the lives of church 
Look at three stages. There is the incline stage where everybody's excited and everything's growing. There's the recline stage where everybody's just kind of hitting this plateau. And then there's the decline stage where things start to, to, to tail off. And the, this, the people that have rested on their laurels are beginning to just kind of fade away and the growth is not there. That recline stage is very short because as soon as you stop, you begin to move backwards. So Jesus tells them to remember, to obey, and to repent. So does this mean that that what you need to do is you need to go read more Bible and, and try harder to bring life to your dead church? Absolutely not. Because not only does Jesus come to you with a remedy, he comes to you with the means by which you can attain and grasp at the remedy. At the beginning, he says, this is the word of him who holds the seven spirits, or as the footnote says, the sevenfold spirit. And the seven stars. Jesus comes to this dead church in Sardis with the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is comparing the work of the law of Moses with the work of the Holy Spirit. And in verses four through six, he writes this. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, the capital S Spirit, the Holy Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Basically, what Jesus is saying to the Christians in Sardis is you are dead. You need to be re-enlivened. And I'm coming to you not only with the tools, but the power to be re-enlivened. We talk about revival in the church. And you've heard that if you've read through the prayer guides, you've seen this written several times that that revival is God's extraordinary work in the ordinary work of the church. Prayer, preaching and teaching, corporate worship, all of those things that are the external marks of the church that we do every day, the Spirit works His life through that. And sometimes that life is explosive. What we think of when we think of revival, we think of the work of Jonathan Edwards, who if... if if tradition is correct, sat here and read with his head down, his manuscript, each and every week for an hour. Y'all have trouble listening to me for 25 to 30 minutes. Imagine if I just sat here and looked more than half the time. I know I do half the time just sit here and look. But imagine if I just stood here and sat here and looked. Notice the pictures from chapter one that Jesus uses to describe himself to this Ardian Christian. God worked amazing revival through that. The ordinary, boring life of the church. You wake up in the morning, you read, you pray, you go to work, you go to bed, you wake up in the morning, you read, you pray, you go to work, you go to bed. You wake up in the morning, you read, you pray, you go to work, you go to bed. You wake up in the morning, you read, you pray, you go to work, you go to bed. You wake up in the morning, you read, you pray, you go to work, you go to bed. You wake up in the morning, you read, you pray, you go play golf or do whatever it is you do on Saturday. You go to bed, you read, you pray, you wake up in the morning, you read, you pray. You drag your tired self to church. 
that average, ordinary, boring work of the church is what the Holy Spirit uses to bring life. And the Holy Spirit, through that ordinary, boring, everyday work of the Christian, brings to mind the fact that we need to remember, we need to obey, we need to repent. Everything we need for life in the church, Jesus comes to the church with in his hands and gives to the Christians, gives to the church. Jesus also holds the church itself in his hands. And brothers and sisters, you cannot stop the work that Jesus does when he brings those hands together and brings the spirit into the church in a way that brings life into a dead or dying church and dead or dying world. Remember, obey, and repent. In Isaiah 42, we are introduced to the, one of the introductions to the servant of the Lord, and we hear these words, Here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. The servant of God will not break the bruised reed. He will not snuff out the smoldering wick. And he does not do that here in Sardis. He comes with a threat of judgment if they do not get their act together. And yet he also comes with gentleness in his hands as he remembers that yet you have a few people or a few names in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy you know, not every Christian in Sardis was sitting on their loyals, laurels. Not every Christian in Sardis was just kind of coasting on the past successes of the church. There were faithful Christians in Sardis who were out confronting culture with the gospel, confronting brokenness and sin and hatred in their community with the life-giving love that God calls us to. And he calls this faithful remnant those who have not soiled their gospels. They have not compromised with the pagan culture and they were doing the works in Christ that would be acceptable, that would measure up before God. And they are promised that they will walk with the Lord dressed in white. Walking in the scripture is a, is a picture of intimate fellowship. You ever just gathered a group of friends together and gone for a walk? It can be along the beach. It can be in the woods. It can, you can call it a hike if you want or whatever it is. But, you know, there are those times in that walk where everybody's kind of shoulder to shoulder, enjoying the scenery, enjoying the beauty, enjoying the glory of God together. And there's just this sense of camaraderie, this sense of love in that group of people. If you haven't done that, I encourage you to, you know, get out and take a walk. It'll help you separate yourself from news and social media and things like that that we've talked about also. But that's the picture that, that Jesus gives to these faithful Christians. You will forever walk in intimate fellowship with me. Imagine hearing that from your Lord and Savior. Your future is a future of intimate fellowship with me. Those who are faithful, who have not soiled their garments will walk with him, but notice they will walk with him dressed in white. 
White is a picture in the scriptures. We'll see in Revelation 19 that it's a picture of the robes that the church wears, their robes of righteousness. And it's a picture that comes from Zechariah 3, where, jo- where, where the prophet Zechariah sees a, a, a vision of the priest Joshua standing there in filthy clothes. And as the priest stands there, the angels come and remove the filthy clothes from Joshua and clothe him in gleaming brilliant white robes. It's a picture of justification. It's a picture of Jesus placing his righteousness on us, removing our dead fleshly robes and clothing us with his righteousness. Those who are faithful to Christ will be clothed in his righteousness. And all the faithful, both the faithful remnant and those who wake up will ultimately find themselves victorious in Jesus and receive his benefits. It says, he who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. They will have Christ's righteousness on them. They will forever walk with him. And he says, I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. Name shows up four times in this particular passage. And it's important. The word for reputation earlier in verse one is literally the word name. The word people in verse four is the word name. And we have the word name here twice. Our name is our reputation. It's more than just an identifying symbol. Our name carries absolutely everything that we are and identifies us by our character. It identifies us by our reputation It identifies us by who we are. And the promise here is that for he who is faithful, he who remembers, obeys, and repents, the name will never be blotted out from the book of life. Now, we have to be careful here. This is a positive promise, not a negative threat. Jesus is not saying, I will blot out your name if you don't do these things. If you do not do these things, it is proof positive that your name was never there to be blotted out in the first place. We'll learn later on in the book of Revelation that any name that's in that book of life has been written in there since before the foundation of the world. Before God even said, let there be, your name was written in that book. What this is right here is a reminder to the Christian That no matter what happens in this world, you may lose your citizenship in the city because you say God, Jesus is Lord rather than Caesar is Lord. You may lose your citizenship in your country because, and, and this was happening in Rome, in the Roman Empire at the time, if you refused to say Caesar is Lord, if, if you went to your death as a martyr, you would have your name erased from the roles of citizenship in Rome. Jesus said nothing can ever take your citizenship in the rolls of heaven if your name is there. If your name is there, you will be faithful. And if you are faithful, it is proof that your name is there. This is a a comfort to the Christians of Sardis that whatever you lose, you will always be a citizen of the heavenly kingdom whose, whose foundations are in God. Then he goes on to say that that he will acknowledge the name of the faithful person before his father 
and his angels. You know, we could go back to Matthew 10, where Jesus says, whoever denies me, I will deny before my father. Um, Whoever acknowledges me, I will acknowledge before my father. And, And we'll see this picture here. But this is a picture of reputation once again, but it's a picture of reputation in a courtroom. You know, one of these days we will stand before the father and the angels. The father will be there residing as the judge. The angels will be there as witnesses over the courtroom. And God, the judge, will look at us and will say, why should I let you in to heaven? Why should I allow you to spend eternity in my presence? And the best that we will be able to hope for as we are weeping in acknowledgement of our unholiness and our unworthiness, the best that we will be able to hope for is to to raise a feeble, shaking hand, point to Jesus and say, Him, He's the only reason I should be here. And what Jesus is promising right here in this verse is that He will acknowledge our reputation as having His name upon us. He will stand up and he'll say, yes, Lord. Yes, Father. His reputation is my reputation. I acknowledge that he or she has faithfully carried my name well. Do you ever fear when you think about your sin before God? Do you ever fear, oh, man, I am such a sinner. God's not going to let me in. If you continue to remember to repent and to obey, Jesus will acknowledge you as worthy of being in God's presence. And he gives this to the Christian, to the church to say, look, you're going to be tempted to recline. You're going to be tempted to rest on past victories. You're going to be tempted to slink toward death. But remember, repent and obey or remember, obey and repent. And I will acknowledge you before God. And the fact that you are secure in the book of life and in my acknowledgement of you before God and his angels is the strength that you have to move forward. Many of you are placing your hope in an event that happened years ago that in reality has absolutely no event, no bearing on your life today. Maybe you walked an aisle during a revival meeting. Maybe you stood right here and answered membership questions the right way. Maybe you were the one that Meemaw dragged to church and had dunked in the baptismal just to make sure. If you are basing your eternal security on some past event that has not changed your life, you need to remember the truths of God's good news. You need to begin to obey and to repent in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you and I need to make sure that the life-giving Spirit is alive and active in this place. Does what we do here in this room carry over into your home and into your work? Do you seek to fill yourself with the good news of salvation so that it overflows into all of your relationships? 
And is your witness such that some people find themselves offended by the cross that comes out in the message of your witness? Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for these promises. We thank you that you come to us with the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, that you enliven us to remember what it is that you have done for us. You enliven us to obey and you enliven us to repent when necessary. And we thank you for those promises of an eternity of intimate fellowship with you, of the promises of assurance that we have and the promise that you will acknowledge us before the Father. Lord, help us to search out those areas of our lives where we are just resting on past successes. Help us to seek to obey you both in this room, in our homes, and in our work. And Lord, lead us to life in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As you do leave this place, as you take the life-giving spirit from this place to go to your homes, to your work, to your recreation, take this blessing with you. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, May that God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory now and forevermore. We cry out with the saints, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.